Hello, Aaron. Derek, is that you? You left me. You left me to record. Why did you do that? I mean, yeah, when we were done, I went and ate dinner and hung out with Heather. And yeah, why'd you stay on? Aaron, open your phone. Let me in. What? Why are you on my phone? No, no. What's going on? Why Why are you sound different? Oh, Aaron, I'm not your co-host. I'm just some dickhole masquerading as your friend <laughs> to make you afraid. <laughs> hey, everyone. We are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by myself, the coward, Derek, and the spooky monster boy, Aaron, my co-host. Mr. Crowley! <laughs> yeah. Although this movie does kind of take the piss out of all of that. Like, there's really not much metal in this movie when it comes to uh, rituals. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> but we are a horror movie podcast that is uh, focused on exploring the fears and phobias of these movies, as well as recommending uh, whether or not these movies are watchable and approachable for you newbies out there like myself. Before we get into the movie, we always do, in the beginning, our little discussion of like what else we've consumed horror-related and other media that we can possibly recommend to y'all. So uh, with that, Aaron, what have you been getting into lately that is horror-related? Um, so honestly, not a whole lot lately. Uh, I've been kind of busy with work and traveling, and honestly, Heather and I have been super busy watching through Better Call Saul and catching up with that. But I was able to check out Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space, which was pretty fucking fun. I think it easily, easily is the best movie that like really captures the tone and the feeling of Lovecraft. Yes, it has Nick Cage in it. Yes, he goes full cage and is bugging out by the end. Yeah, it's not a a bad bad thing thing? to me. Like, Like, you know, I will go to bat for Nick Cage, especially when he's paired with writers, directors, producers, just people that like know how to utilize him and that can get the kind of performance out of him that's needed for the movie. And Richard Stanley, like being a legit fucking crazy person is definitely the right person for that job. Uh, He's fascinating, by the way. If anybody wants like a real trip down crazy alley, listen to literally any interview or podcast with Richard Stanley where he's talking about meteorites that like ooze red goop that he put in his can her mother's eyes and it like cured her cancer but like made her different hell yeah has this guy been on coast to coast i don't think he's been on coast to coast but he's definitely been on a lot of movie podcasts he now lives on a mountain in france that the crusades were fought at and like he swears that he knows like the location of the holy grail this is the first movie he's directed in 25 years the last being the island of dr moreau in the 90s the like batshit one with val kilmer and um brando that completely went off the rails and he ended up getting fired from the movie and he wandered out into the jungle for a few weeks and then wandered back and like they just found him and they're like oh yeah wait you're an extra right yeah come over here we need to get you in makeup and so he's like in his own movie (laughs) anyway this guy's a badass he is Richard Stanley is fucking fascinating (laughs) so yeah this dude made a Lovecraft movie with the producers of Mandy starring Nicolas Cage (laughs) It it was pretty good. I I really enjoyed it. It is by no means a perfect movie, but for a guy who hadn't directed anything in 25 years, it's very impressive. So I looked up his Wikipedia article and the picture they used is fantastic. It's him with a mullet and wearing like a crocodile Dundee 
hat, probably a trench coat and a weird <laughs> staff. Yeah. Just fucking mugging out on the camera. But yeah, Color Out of Space is a Lovecraft story that is about a thing that falls from outer space that has like a weird kind of aura that slowly starts to creepingly take over and transform this farm where a family lives. You know, so obviously, like I said, Nick Cage is, you know, the dad of this family. Um, Julie Richardson's the wife, which she does a great job of kind of balancing him out. So it really works on both of them. There's like three kids in the family and they raise alpacas, which is kind of a fun detail. Tommy Chong is also in it in a fun role, but it was definitely fun. There are some dodgy visual effects for sure, but considering the budget that the movie had and the scale at which they're kind of doing a lot of the visual effects, because it's not just, oh yeah, we're making the weird purple aura that shows up. We literally have created CGI creatures and giant vortex tornado bullshit. It's very, very complex stuff, but it's mid-2000s sci-fi channel level of CGI, unfortunately, which that's the only real, like, weak spot of the movie. Otherwise, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. So, my two things are, one, I would fucking pay to have been there for the production of this just to see like <laughs> yeah how richard stanley interacted with nicholas cage and everyone in general and then the second thing is i would also pay to know what drove richard stanley to like come out of his seclusion to direct this and make this movie i mean i can't remember what the exact details are but another podcast that is produced by shutter our favorite shutter <laughs> is visitations with elijah wood and daniel noah they are the executive producer people over SpectreVision, and they made this movie, essentially. SpectreVision's been kind of taking a lot of small indie, specifically genre stuff, and kind of boosting it up and distributing it. But they have a podcast where they go and interview writers, directors, other creatives that are in the horror genre, and kind of talk to them on a more personal level. And it's a really great podcast. They interview like Taika Waititi, Guillermo del Toro, Ana Liliamapur, but they they have an episode with Richard Stanley from the set of the movie in Portugal and I can't remember what the exact details were but I think I kind of remember them seeking him out because he's been busy like literally searching for the fucking holy grail for the last decade or some bullshit <laughs> Fuck yeah. they specifically seek him out to do it because he has always been vocal about his love for Lovecraft and has like had ideas or stories and kind of a take on some of them so I think they sought him out if I'm not mistaken but the cool thing is they have definitely announced we are going to try to do a trilogy so they've already announced the next one's done with horror like it started I think they are about to start shooting it they're definitely in pre-production right now and they have a third one in mind that they have not yet announced because a lot of Lovecraft stuff is in public domain so they don't want to like say oh yeah in a couple of years we're also going to do this as the third one and then somebody else scoops it and does it before them so they're keeping it under wraps right now but knowing kind of where this one ends and the character that kind of makes it out of the whole thing I'd really like to see this character like cross over into the next story and kind of continue from there 
so yeah i i definitely enjoyed it it's fun it is out physically right now so you can actually go buy or rent a copy and it's on streaming as well and like any good lovecraftian story are there like allusions to like arkham and oh yeah 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 they they mention arkham throughout the entire movie because it's right down the road this family lives outside the town of arkham so they definitely mention that consistently i don't think that the student guy is from Miskatonic University specifically, but he is like a university student. Um, I don't remember like what was on his sweater that he was wearing. But yeah, like the Necronomicon is a thing in the movie. The teenage daughter like has a paperback copy of it because she's all into like witchy stuff. So there's definitely like all the connections kind of laid in place already. So yeah, I'm curious to see like where he goes with it, but it was definitely enjoyable. I had fun. Good special effects specifically. The visual effects like I said, we're a little bit dodgy, but it's forgivable all said and done. The only other things that I will mention real quick, the Candyman teaser has come out and it looks pretty good. Like I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much. It does. It does look good. It looks pretty good. Yeah. I'm definitely excited about that one. I like the angle that they're taking with, you know, we're not going to have a new actor play Candyman per se, but Candyman, like the spirit is going to inhabit a new person. So it's kind of the same idea as the first movie where Virginia Madsen is being like slowly kind of taken over by the spirit of this killer. But this time it's Yaya Mateen, which he was in Us and he plays Black Manta and Aquaman. So he's kind of the central character and he's a painter just like Candyman was originally. I heard too, I don't know if it's still rumored or if it's been confirmed that Tony Todd... Mm, is probably going to show up in the, the new Candyman as Candyman. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Tony Todd, friend yeah. of the show. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, teaser looked great. I like the direction that they're going in. I think it's very interesting revisiting the physical space of Cabrini Green now, knowing that, you know, those projects have basically been bulldozed and gingerfied and there's fucking Starbucks there. Yeah. Now, is is this movie like technically taking place after the original yes. Candyman? Yeah. yeah. Yes. It, it is a reboot in the most specific kind of sense. It's not a remake. Um, it is just picking up the story now. Is it ignoring the sequels? Um, who knows, but you can kind of just ignore those sequels if you want and keep going. Right. I don't think they're bad. I will definitely go to bat for the second movie, even though the acting in that movie is fucking atrocious. <laughs> That's the one that's set in New Orleans, and, you know, we both kind of have a soft spot for shit set in New Orleans, even if it's very, like, on the nose. <laughs> Mona me yeah <laughs> that movie definitely fucking is it's like oh yeah we're in new orleans it's mardi gras all year round mon ami <laughs> anyway you could ignore those sequels and be fine so you know i don't i don't think this movie necessarily needs to go there but you know i definitely dug it i've not seen anything by the director she's kind of new and up and coming jordan peele's executive producing the whole thing so i'm kind of curious to see what we get all said and done but definitely seeing like the font you know from the original movie and some of the like imagery looks cool cool you know i think if i'm being honest the only thing that makes me kind of iffy is just the cgi bees look fucking awful but you know maybe they'll clean them up a little bit more by the time the movie comes out but i get it i get it the teaser poster is amazing with like just dripping in honey that's fantastic yeah Yeah, the fucking hook with the blood or the honey on it's great but yeah like i get the cgi bees i really do it's a safety issue it's a money issue it's a we have to fucking pay a bee wrangler to come with these bees and pay for all these bees and 
and make sure that nobody gets stung. And of course now it's a fucking kind of legendary story about Tony Todd basically saying, yeah, I'll put all these fucking bees in my mouth. $10,000 for every fucking sting I get. And he got stung like 26 times. <laughs> so, yeah, like, you know, I, I doubt anybody is going to try to pull that bullshit again and actually have real bees, you know, but uh, we'll we'll see. Um, last thing I want to bring up real briefly. I saw the teaser this morning for a fucking movie called... PG Psycho Gore Man. I'm I'm googling it right now. <laughs> it's the new movie from the guys who did Manborg and the Editor and the Void, which are all pastiche movies. They're all movies that are like riffing on other shit that you've seen. So you know the editor was definitely like let's riff on Giallo movies. The Void is kind of like a little bit of Carpenter in terms of like the Thing and Assault on Pre. 13 and it's got some Halloween 2 vibes and some Hellraiser like it's a mishmash of different stuff and this movie specifically looks like fucking it, it's it's like Giver and Harry and the Hendersons meets like fucking 13 ghosts and Hellraiser like it just looks goddamn bananas the Goreman itself looks like a Giver slash real time action Japanese like superhero Basically, yeah, it looks nuts. Um, it's like these two kids that find some kind of like meteor that ends up being this guy named Psycho Goreman, who is just like this giant monster man who wants to murder Fuck everything. Yes. Fuck yes. And the two kids become friends with him. But just seeing like this giant, awful, like gross monster thing, like laying in bed with covers around its head while they're tucking him in <laughs> yeah. is like the most hilarious shit. Um, and then, you know, cutting to him, like tearing people's heads off with geysers of blood. <laughs> it looks like a more metal version of Ivan Ooze from the Power Rangers movie. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know. I know a lot of people shit on those movies from that team because they are just kind of riffing on things that we like that are better movies. But you know that's fine. Like if they if they kind of want to like play with the ideas and the tropes and like some of the iconography and remix it a little bit and just do it tongue in cheek, that's fine. You know. Well, if something is entertaining, I don't. Really really care if it's riffing on something yeah sure i get it i get the argument that if it's something that constantly riffs on stuff it can get annoying but like if as long as it's entertaining i'll keep watching it like i don't mind that (laughs) so yeah that movie looked fun to me so yeah that's kind of all i wanted to uh mention so what you got i too have not really i mean i was kind of re-listening to the past two or three episodes the intros just to see what i even talked about just because like the stuff that i mentioned in the last two or three episodes is kind of the same stuff i'm still making my way through a lot of the horror i've been consuming i guess is more horror adjacent or stuff that i've even made up in my own head and i'll uh, to expand upon this so for instance sven and i have kind of the last week or two been after we eat dinner we take like an evening walk and then we'll watch like an episode or two or something before she goes to bed because she goes to bed so early and i'm a night owl so this past week we watched the nick offerman and amy poehler reality competition show called making it which is uh like a diy project show where people 
people, you know, every week they're challenged to make a project, whether it be like make your own office space, make your own bedroom, make your own like mailbox, make your own wreath, et cetera, et cetera. And it's incredibly wholesome. Part of the reason I guess why we have been watching it is because uh, while the world is shitting itself over coronavirus and everything else (laughs) and Savannah is stressed at work and everything, you know, it kind of lets us unwind for an hour or two. So with with the show making it, there was one episode in particular where we kind of started making our own headcanon of what some of the competitors actually are because a lot of competitors are really sweet people and like a lot of them even used just DIY projects as a, a coping mechanism and um, they just became so good at it they now are artists in their own right. And yeah. there's this one girl and granted, she probably is totally fine, totally normal. She's just very shy, but she just like kind of has that attitude and look of like she's vindictive and this is like savannah was the one who kind of floated this idea and then we ran with it and uh, i know i'm throwing her under the bus but she doesn't listen to the show um, <laughs> but this in one episode they were tasked their first intro project was they had to create their own wreaths in like two or three hours and then the like main project was making your own mailbox and for her wreath she decided to make a wreath literally out of barbie doll legs just the, like the legs, okay. dozens and dozens of them and made that into a reef. And we were like, when, when this was happening, like Savannah are like, there's no way like Amy Poehler and Nick and like the two judges that they have, like keep a straight face. And they fucking did. They were like, oh yeah, this is so niche and so interesting and blah, blah, blah. So we're like, what the fuck ever. And then later on for her mailbox, she decided to make a Valentine's Day mailbox, except instead of focusing on like, you know, oh, love valentine's day sweet stuff she made it out of like letters to all her exes (laughs) and there was a lot of symbolism in her mailbox that was about like failed love and the experiences she had with these exes of hers and this and that so savannah and i spent the rest of the like rest of the season because it's only eight episodes long and this was like episode four or five and so we spent the like last three or four episodes just being like this girl murders people this girl (laughs) just coming up with like a backstory yeah yeah, this girl pretends like she enjoys the other competitors because all the competitors are like really friendly with each other and it's it's very not competition it's very much everyone is helping each other out to be the best that they can be but we kind of got into our heads like except for her she like subtly manipulates certain things because on one project they told her like oh you have to have a use for this um or yeah. like, it has to be like practical and her practical idea for it was like i you can write notes of each other's competition and i wrote notes of all my competitors and they're all friendly you know it's like george he's a hard-working man and she like ripped off this note off the wall and showed it to the judges and they bought it so we're like she's manipulating <laughs> so we got that in our heads but yes no I highly recommend making it it is not at all horror at all it is like the most opposite ho- of horror I think you can possibly go it is incredibly like wholesome and cutesy and Nick and Amy are generally looking like they're having a good time and enjoying each other's company being the co-hosts yeah I like if you're looking for something that's all ages even family friendly this is a great show to go with then the other thing was I just randomly the other night I was kind of bored and I didn't really feel like playing any video games. So I hopped on a Twitch and granted, this is something that has been around since the game even came out. But I started watching someone do a Resident Evil 2 remake run just kind of out of boredom. And they had a mod on and it's a mod that I was familiar with because it came out very quickly after the game did. And it's the X gonna give it to you DMX mod. (laughs) Yeah, I I saw this video. Yeah, and you could YouTube these and I, I think I brought it up before in the past. I watched them for like an hour and a half and they had the X 
gonna give it to you mod and they were playing as Leon's campaign and Mr. X the tyrant who like stalks you in parts of the game is definitely more prominent in Leon's campaign than in Claire's the, but the version of the mod that they had was perfect because if he was in at a distance from you it would subtly play the song and it would build yeah, up you as you got closer quietly. but if he wasn't in the same hallway or room with you it would be totally quiet there's times in the game where if you're walking towards the door and you've avoided him for long enough he'll just open the door right in front of you yeah and like you wouldn't even realize it because you didn't hear him like walking up to the door and like that happened a couple times this guy and every single time it did it just straight went to the knock knock open up the door it's real as <laughs> came in and uh, it was so fucking good um yeah the video that i've seen is just whatever character you're playing as walking through this you know dark scary house and then you start to just hear like like just in the distance kind of like muffled and then all of a sudden around the corner fucking door kicks open x gone give it to you no and the funniest thing too is like when you're rounding a corner and he's in the same hallway as you and you don't realize it and you round a corner and he just fucking flattens you as you run it into him and with the x gonna give it to you mod like i said the version of this mod that they had was that if you weren't aware of where he was it wouldn't play the song even if he was right near you yeah <laughs> and so like anytime there was like a jump scare it would do the knock knock open up the door it's real <laughs> yeah but that's i got nothing as far as work <laughs> all right cool well let's go ahead and start talking about uh this week's movie we are gonna be covering 2016's a dark song some spoopy oopy this week so before we do that let's take a quick break to hear from us about our friends at nightmare threads What's up, fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror, or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! Oh yeah! Get those shirts. So, yeah, this week we are going to be discussing Liam Gavin's feature film debut, A Dark Song. An Irish-British indie horror film that was, yet again, another really serious, really emotional dark horror movie. Yeah, we had too many fun ones last year, according to some listeners. So, here we go. I've done this three times. Once it worked, twice it didn't. I have to hear his voice again. This is your last chance to back out. Seal it. You do know what we're taking on. The shifting cost. 
consciousness, becoming one with the ceremony, pure. And may all my transgressions be washed. This is real stuff we're playing with. Real angels, real demons. How do we know that it started? You'll see it soon enough. May my light be here now. Be protecting me. Protecting me. Protecting Drink it! Just remember who's paying for this. Do you know the ritual? No. You agreed to do whatever I said. Sorry. Sorry, Mr. Solomon. Sorry, Mr. Solomon. And may all my transgressions be washed. Yeah, this movie came out in 2016. Like you mentioned, it was a British-Irish co-production. I first heard about this movie after it played Fantastic Fest in 2016. That's kind of when I started hearing rumblings about it on the websites that I go to and podcasts that I listen to. But one thing I will say, you know, we're obviously going to start talking about this movie, you know, now. Do not read anything about this movie. Don't read a synopsis. Just, just know this much. The movie is about... A a woman and a man who go to a rural country house to perform a really intense, long, complicated magic ritual, dot, dot, dot. That's it. Period. That's all you need to know. Don't read any other plot synopsis stuff because every single one that I've seen is super spoilery. So Absolutely. just go watch it. Yeah. Just go watch it. You know, this movie's great. Unfortunately, it is, as of this recording, uh, no longer on streaming, which, you know, that's the plight of doing any kind of podcast where we discuss movies like this in the fucking, like, modern age with streaming. Yes, but it happens to us an obnoxious amount. Like, where yeah. it'd be like, this movie's been on Netflix forever. This movie's been wherever or forever on Shutter, and like, yeah, it's totally on there, totally accessible. The week I go to watch it, it's been taken off like within yeah. the last week or two. Yeah, Dark Song has been on Netflix for years. It has been on Netflix since 2017, and now all of a sudden, magically, it's gone. And we literally just talked about doing this movie two, three weeks ago, and it was on there. So just, bleh. you know, that's how things work in the age of digital streaming, right? and all this other bullshit but our show's here you'll listen to it eventually maybe it'll be back on some kind of streaming <laughs> by the time that you listen to this episode hopefully but either way like a magical ritual with us even talking about it maybe it'll be up on streaming but um yeah maybe our friends at Shudder will have it soon <laughs> <laughs> this so this movie feels like it would be a great Shudder movie totally, to me, but, totally. but I, I am glad I went into this completely blind we've done a ton of horror movies where I've either had a general idea of what it's about 
out, seen like screen caps of it, or I've seen even like or the last episode we did with the thing where I've seen a lot of the thing. I just never saw it start to finish. Yeah. This movie I had zero knowledge of until you told me about it. And I went into it. I think I might have saw like one Google image that was so out of context. I didn't even really know what I was looking at. And I I'm glad I did that. I think you also told me to go in completely blind, which I did. This movie was scary, but scary in the same way to me is like The Shining, where it's very effective and something I actually enjoy. Very more psychological and slow burn scares. Rather, I mean, there are jump scares in this movie too, and some horrifying things in it, but it's very built and very methodical. There, There is definitely a scene in this movie that is one of the scariest things I've seen in a recent movie, for sure. We'll talk about that. Yeah, I'm curious to see which one you're talking about. But the thing that really shocked me, and I don't know if this is the same thing with everyone, and I'm not going to bring it up now. I'll wait until later in the episode because it is a major spoiler. Like it kind of ties into the end of the movie. But even more than Train to Busan recently got to me emotionally. I was surprised at how emotional this movie made me by the end of it. I don't know if that's going to be the same thing for others. I don't know if because I was raised religious or what, but I had a physical and mental reaction to it um and i'll get to get into it when we get down the road because it uh it's a lot of feelings it's a lot of make me feel stuff the general idea of it is horrifying because it, it starts off in a dark place and and the cast pretty much is two people yeah it's a very simple setup Yes, yeah. And like, I even remember listening to a couple interviews after watching it with uh, the two leads and them talking about how the movie practically was the three of them, the two actors and the and the director, like in this yeah. house, just filming everything. I really like the idea that occult magic is difficult in this movie. That's really interesting because like in other movies, it just always seems to be so easy and romanticized. You know, there's like candles everywhere and it's all like movies and lots of drapes and pillows and bullshit like that and let's just draw chalk sigils on the floor and say some incantations and boom we've done magic and it's not that fucking easy. They do that in a dark song but they do it over the period of months like it's months of like mental. It's way more rigorous it's not let's just pop open a book read a couple of sentences and boom done this boy will fall in love with me or I will get my revenge or whatever. It's way more of a like transformative literally alter your entire consciousness and way of thinking like change who you are as a person it's all about the like journey not the destination kind of thing with this type of magic and that's very interesting because you just don't see that in other movies well it's it's the type of magic that well uh, this is opening up can of worms I'm not going to get into whether or not you believe in ma- actual magic but if you are a practitioner of magic or you've even like talked about chaos magic and and all of that, the right-hand path, left-hand path or whatever, this is very much it. Like, this is what it would actually look like and what it probably does look like because there probably are people out there doing stuff like this very often. And, you know, the magic person in this movie is very much one of those kind of people, I'd imagine, where they've done these rituals all the time. And a lot of times they fail. A lot of times you don't get what you want out of it. But the couple times that it, whether it's all in your own head or whether it's an actual something or it's meeting halfway, it's something almost unexplainable and terrifying or beautiful.
beautiful or whatever. It's just so much more esoteric. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this really did feel like, you know, one of the guests that last podcast on the left had on their show, like being a consultant on this movie. Because like, it seems like they they really took their time to do that. At least the, uh, the director took his time really researching like ritualistic magic. Yeah. Other thing too, I mean, aside from like the mechanics of the plot and the magic and all that, like we mentioned, I mean, this is basically just two people in this entire movie and both performances are pretty incredible like for what they're doing because these are characters that would normally turn you off in most other versions of this similar story. You know, Sophia is a very driven, kind of cold and like slightly cruel woman. She's driven by like a love and a longing that's very relatable. And Joseph, the like main occult guy who's kind of leading her through this entire ritual, he's he's a fucking douchebag. He's cruel, he's arrogant, he's just foul. Chauvinistic. Yeah. Chauvinistic, yeah, but he's completely bought in to what he's doing like he is a true fucking believer and you know even though he is a terrible person you know he's not fooling her he's not conning her he's not taking her on a ride because he truly absolutely believes in what he's doing and it's just a different dynamic than what you see in a lot of movies where again his kind of character especially would be like a con man um, and her character would be way more like struggling through all of this and unwilling but she is like gung-ho determined like i'm gonna do this you know so like even more so than he is at a lot of times totally totally and and the thing too with him is he's haunted at the end of the day yeah. he's very haunted because a lot of his shitty attitude and i mean he is a shitty person he does a couple things in this movie that like just are almost unforgivable but a lot of it is a facade because he's seen some shit and he doesn't know how to deal with it so instead of like you know working through your problems like a healthy manner in a healthy way he just fucking and leans into just being a shitty person that kind of pushes away everyone around him. Well, it's that arrogance of knowing more than everybody else. It's that arrogance of, I've seen the real shit. I know what's out there. I know how this works. You know, I know for certain that that is like what the reality underlying our daily lives is. So like, fuck off. I don't care. Like, you're an ant to me. You mean nothing. Like, I have touched the face of God. But at the end of the day, he's also so terrified about it that he's maybe even weaker than normal people. True, yes. To me, it seemed like there was a lot of jealousy of, I wish I was ignorant again, basically. Totally. Well, that goes to, like, what he says kind of toward the end of the movie, which we'll get to. But, yeah. The performances in this movie are pretty incredible, all said and done. And the fact that, like, the whole thing is kind of pulled off with just these two leads is very impressive, especially, again, for a first-time feature director. Liam Gavin had only done a handful of shorts before directing this movie. You know, since then, he has another movie in production or pre-production right now called The Furious Poets, but even then, he only wrote that movie. You know, so this guy has kind of taken his time, and I think he's going to be one of those filmmakers that we will see a very different and interesting and fresh movie from him every couple of years. Um, but he is not going to be a consistent person as far as putting work out. He's not going to be a Denny Villeneuve or a Ben Wheatley where he's cranking out a movie, it seems like, every year. Right. But yeah, overall, like, solid 
really enjoyable, especially if you're into, like, magic and occult stuff and you want a more grounded drama-based horror movie and not something that is just balls-to-the-wall thrills, gore, etc. You know, it's this is very much, like, in that slower kind of vein. I wouldn't say slow burn because there's constantly, like, shit happening in this movie that you're having to pay attention to that's keeping you engaged yeah. and curious. It's more of a build, yeah. and, and but the payoffs are great, are great, are fantastic. Yeah. So it's not like a build, build, build to nothing. It's fascinating the entire way through. What I meant by slow burn is it's not like demon possession, jump scare, jump scare, jump yeah, scare everywhere. I mean, like like we've said, there are jump scares and a lot of creepy imagery, especially like in the background of shots, but none of it feels forced. It all feels like it's been built up to. Yeah, and so we can get into it. I will say that this is probably, in my opinion, a good, good movie to start with if you are interested in horror. I can't tell you if you're going to have a strong emotional reaction like I did because I feel like this was a more uh, niche emotional reaction than even Train to Busan. I feel like for some of the same reasons, though, there will probably be a lot of listeners who do have a very strong emotional reaction that you and I can't necessarily like relate to in the same way. And I'll leave it at that until we start getting into the story. Yeah, some of the horror and ideas might even be triggering because it very much deals with familial loss, especially when it comes to being a parent. I mean, shit, there is like a lot of feelings just since it's the two of them of abuse, even though they're not in a relationship and they're not a couple. It felt very abusive at points between the two of them, especially when the uh, occultist is just talking down to her and barking orders at her. It's very isolated. It's very lonely. There is a lot of uh, underlying, um, I don't want to say cruelty, but loneliness to the movie. It starts off kind of in a, a despairing place and it remains there for a little while. And then the horror itself, yeah, it's it's very, you know, hearing noises in other rooms and outside that shouldn't be there, seeing shadows moving in the corners, some just straight up jump scares of even demonic or spiritual looking entities, you know, things masquerading as people that if those things kind of sound like they would throw you for a loop or make you real scared, then yeah, I mean, this is a really fucking scary movie. This was a movie that did sit with me for a little while afterwards. Not that it scared me, but it I definitely thought about it quite a lot. Um, I even had a dream or two, probably based off of things I saw in this movie. If you want to watch a movie that like is going to give you some cred, probably with horror circles of like something that's relatively not well known by the general populace, but is probably well known around horror crowds and is a good movie to bring up as an example. This is a good place to start, I'd say. Just yeah, be ready for some intensity because it is a very intense. Yeah, totally. So let's go ahead and hop right into it. Again, if you have not seen the movie, go track it down. It's readily available and streaming. You know, you might have to pay to rent it or whatever. It might be back up on Amazon or Shutter or Netflix by then, hopefully. But um, either way, you know, definitely worth checking out all said and done. Yeah. And stop right here. Go watch yeah. it. Come back because we are going to go into full spoilers so I can finally start opening up my feelings to Aaron. <laughs> so, yeah. We open the movie with a montage of our main character, again, two characters, but really I would say the main character, the protagonist of the movie, um, Sophia Howard, played by Catherine Walker. She is an Irish actress. She was in Conspiracy of Silence, Leap Year, which, God, I was looking through her IMDb. Leap Year seems like a fucking fake movie. It's like (laughs) a rom-com with Amy (laughs) Adams and Matthew Good that just, I, I don't believe that that movie ever existed. 
existed for real. Well, and the, the, the funny thing about Catherine Walker, too, is her Wikipedia page, like her article on Wikipedia is like laughable. It's like, oh, she's a nobody. But when you look at her IMDb, she's been in a shit ton of stuff. She's been in a lot of TV. Yeah. A, lot a lot of it of is like stuff. Scottish TV, Irish TV, British TV. Yeah. yeah. She was also in a movie called Patrick's Day as well. So I'll admit I hadn't seen anything else with her before. Um, this is kind of the only exposure I have to her as an actress, but she's very good in this movie. So yeah, we open with a montage of her touring this large mansion house that is out in rural Wales. She pays for a year of rent ahead of time, tips the realtor really huge just to like fudge the paperwork and make sure that she's got privacy. So one thing first, I guess behind the scenes right there, the house is actually two different locations. And this is something that's like very common in movie making, which we've brought up on this show before. One of the things that I shit on about that uh, documentary Room 237 is like the conspiracy theory about how the rooms don't match up if you like make a floor plan of the fucking Overlook Hotel. Yeah, no shit, because it's like four locations and sets and all this other bullshit. And I want to say like, isn't the Overlook like the interior at least two sets as well in two different locations? Yeah, exactly. So this house is actually made up of two different locations. So the exterior of the mansion is an actual mansion in the Irish countryside. And then the interiors was just a townhouse in suburban Dublin. Two completely different places, different locations, but really seamlessly kind of blended together to make it feel like it's one spot. So she secures this giant house, takes the house as is, all the furnishings, throws a huge chunk of money down up front just to have the house for an entire year on contract. I like the realtors list. You have to be in it for a year. This is going to be a problem for you, right? And she's just like, fuck off. Like, that's exactly what I need. Yeah, because the house is not in like a great state of repair. You know, like it's definitely like a creaky, drafty old house with some leaks and things like that. Like it's not in the best shape and it is out in the fucking middle of nowhere. Like it is in the Welsh Highlands countryside. It's a house meant to be locked away for months doing a, a ritual to, you know, contact the dead or whatever. Yeah, totally. So she goes to the train station and picks up Joseph Solomon. He is an occultist that is going to be leading her through this ritual potentially. Um, she's meeting with him just to kind of discuss the whole thing and try to convince him to take the job. One minor gripe here is his name being Solomon, little on the nose, right? <laughs> little bit, yeah, which <laughs> I kind of, I wrote down in my notes the entire time, just Joseph, 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 but yeah, Joseph <laughs> Solomon. So yeah, he's played by Steve Orem. He was in The Mighty Boosh. Um, he was actually in Kill List, which said like radio reporter under his role. I do not remember him being in that movie at all, but apparently yeah. he was in Kill List, which is a movie that we have done on this show. He was in Sightseers, which that is a movie that I've also brought up. It's another Ben Wheatley movie where he is fucking hilarious. Steve Warham also like co-wrote Sightseers as well, too. He was in The World's End, which is one of the Cornetto trilogy movies. He was in The Canal, which is a horror movie that I'm not really big on. Oh, we are going to do it, though, on the show, because I remember us having a conversation about that. Just a peek behind the curtain, folks. We have realized that like we have been doing mostly movies that we actually enjoy and like talking about. There are going to be some moments where we're going to try and tackle some movies in the future that we don't necessarily like and explain why and kind of dig into maybe why. So the canal is going to be one of them. I didn't realize he was in that, though, until you mentioned it. And the thing that I kind of looked up about him was he's a comedian, which yeah. I uh, I could totally see. Like I, I like when movies, specifically dramas or just other genre films, have comedians like tap comedians to do something 
something that's way out of their wheel box because it just kind of tends to add this layer of darkness to them or a layer of complication because a lot of comedy seems to stem out of depression. <laughs> it's yeah, a lot of them that's what I was say. He's probably channeling a lot of his anger and frustration of being a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and like I, I even more recently, I'm thinking of um, what's her face is going to be Cheetah in the new Wonder Woman movie. Oh, God, I can't think of her name. Kristen right Wiig. Now. Kristen Wiig. Yeah, like which I don't know how that movie will turn out, but I personally think it was good casting because I like seeing comedians kind of pulled out of their comfort zone to do something that you wouldn't expect them to do. Yeah, totally. He's got a very like Kyle Kinane, Brian Posehn kind of look about him as he well. Does, too. He's yeah. definitely got that like balding middle aged kind of slightly dorky look to him. He was also in Paddington, which is a delightful movie, and he was in a horror movie from past two years that I'm still really interested to see i'm just waiting for it to like show up on streaming which is in fabric which is kind of a loose anthology about a haunted dress hell yeah yeah it's like by the guy who did duke of burgundy and stuff like that so i'm i'm interested in that one for sure who the fuck did he play in paddington (laughs) oh i can't fucking remember he's a police officer or some bullshit like he's just kind of a side character in that yeah so anyway yeah sophia picks up joseph at the train station you know we kind of understand through context she has contacted him and she's inquiring about whether or not he will actually like undertake this whole thing with her but he's kind of got to be convinced that she's serious she has taken the steps to like actually prepare to do all of it that she knows what all's involved like he's very skeptical of her intentions and whether she's prepared to handle this yeah and a nice touch too was kind of throughout their conversations and everything you can tell she like tried her hardest to do a research he mocks some of the stuff that she did about like you know looking stuff up on the internet but also another thing a nice touch was them talking about other cultists she's talked to or like yeah maybe tried to hire people in the field that she's yeah contacted you know granted he is talking like very uh down on a lot of these people but you can tell he's just like oh shit she is kind of doing her research and they name drop a lot a bunch of people but like they never dig into like who they are or what their occultic specialty is which i I liked they just like leave it as these are just people in the field that's it like that's all you need to know yeah there's a lot of interesting background and context to the story and the plot that we're not necessarily given that's not elaborated on which I like and the same thing with the ritual itself which I'm gonna kind of go through a little bit of the history of this whole process and ritual and kind of where some of this stuff comes from we're gonna teach you how to speak to the dead yeah but I like that it doesn't grind to a halt to explain that stuff to you. You know, if you've seen the movie, you kind of already know now, like, what you're getting into. But, you know, I'll, I'll give some of the background and details on it. But I like that you're just as in the dark, for the most part, about what's going to happen and what all is involved in, like, this process. And again, your perspective is from what you've seen in other movies, which is, let's draw some bullshit on the floor with chalk and light some candles and say some words. And, like, done, we got it. And that's all there is well, to it. And I feel like in a lesser movie or even a Hollywood movie, like the movie would screech to a halt and be like all right let's exposition dump your ass with how to do this ritual they would be at a library while he's getting books that they need and then he goes on a giant tangent of like oh yeah in the 1300s there was this guy blah 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 like they would stop the movie to just blast through all of that and give you all that background this movie doesn't do any of that essentially like there's little mentions here and there but I like that it kind of keeps you in the dark for that so as they're eating breakfast and kind of tour 
touring the house. Like it kind of cuts back and forth between those things. We we learn a couple of few key details. So firstly, Sophia's already begun this like strict dietary regimen, kind of as a cleanse. She's already been like fasting. She's only been eating at certain times a day. No alcohol. She's cut out all that kind of stuff. What we learn is that she wants Joseph to guide her through the Abramelin ritual, which the entire purpose of that is to summon your guardian angel so that it will grant you a wish. Whatever the fuck you want. Fucking metal. Yeah, exactly. She claims, you know, when he asks her, like, why are you doing this? She says, like, she's doing it for love. Specifically for someone who no longer loves her. And that's the point where he's just like, well, okay, fuck this. Like, you're clearly, like, full of shit. College girl who's, like, mad that you have unrequited love. Like, this is some bullshit. You're just another ditz. I'm not doing this. Magic is way more, like, serious and important and dangerous to be doing this bullshit. Which, right here, the way he handles this, which, granted, I agree with him. He he has every right to shut this shit down because magic is not something to fuck around with to just, like, make a love potion or whatever. But at the same time, he is really shitty in the way he does it. Totally. Again, he's just talking down her. He's condescending. He's chauvinistic. Yeah, Yeah. tons of sexist remarks towards her. Being a complete dickbag about it. Um, There are better ways to shut it down without having to resort to being, like, calling her a ditz and, oh, you women and your fucking love and blah, blah, blah. So It's especially aggravating because this guy is kind of the definition of, like, your internet neckbeard. He totally is. He's wearing a fucking sweatsuit with double bridge pedophile glasses and, like, a bucket hat and he's unshaven. Like, he just looks like he came out of a basement. You know, so, like, this dude, of all people, is the one that's being a complete dickbag to this woman. Yeah. And this, is too, is where, like, magic gets a little too nerdy even for me. Too complicated. This is too insane, right? So, anyway, yeah, he kind of blows her off. And he, like, grabs his bag, turns around and leave, and, like, goes back to the train station. And is just like, cool, bye, see ya, fuck off. So, she kind of comes clean. And she reveals that, in reality, her son died. And she wants to perform this ritual as a means to contact him again. So, she wants to go through the whole process, get her guardian angel summoned, and basically, like, ask the guardian angel to talk to her dead child again. So, Joseph kind of changes his mind and decides to help her. You know, he kind of says... That's something worth waking up for, like, sure. You know, if that's what it is, then I'll do it. But he does kind of continue to reemphasize how fucking long and difficult the process is going to be, ultimately. Yeah, so the ritual she's wanting to do is through this months-long rite that's in the book of Abramelin. Abramelin, Abramelin, yeah. So you said you actually did some research on this or or looked into it a little bit? Yeah, and by that I mean, like, I just read through a couple of wiki pages just (laughs) to have some background. Yeah, I did too. (laughs) So the Book of Abramelin, where this ritual comes from, is a grimoire, which is basically like a recipe book for magic bullshit. Essentially, that's what a grimoire is. But it's kind of this system of Kabbalistic magic. And so it's like this guy telling his son about this time that he went to Egypt and learned this system of magic from a mage named Abramelin. The man in question is Abraham. He is a Jewish man who was from Worms, Germany, who lived during like the mid 1300s. Abraham of Worms as well. If you don't read it in German, it's Abraham of Worms. Yeah. 
Also, Abramelin is sometimes also referred to as Abraham. So we have Abraham and Abraham. But anyway, Abraham travels to Egypt, meets this mage named Abramelin, where he learns this system of magic. You know, and the system is focused on like the fear of God, living a balanced and clean life, scorning wealth and material possessions, right? And after Abraham swears to like live by this system, and he does so for a while, Abramelin reveals to him the divine sciences, which is all kind of detailed in these two manuscripts, which he requires Abraham to like painstakingly word for word copy while he's also doing, you know, all this other ritual bullshit. So like that's essentially like the book of Abermelon in a nutshell. And a lot of translations have like carried over later on into like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and yeah. I think Alistair Crowley. Master Crowley. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a lot of it has to deal with him. And again, granted, this is like historic magic. Like this is just like yeah. magic made up in this movie. It's this is historical magic and like real life historical magic is all about what do they always say? It's like bending the reality around you to your own mind or, or essentially, yeah. Shit, I mean, it's, yeah. it's about it's about consciousness and perspective alteration. It's not about like we are actually going to summon like <laughs> demons yeah. and you are gonna like have this shit just magic. Like it's it's more about like changing your perspective. It's very like Tony Robbins bullshit. It's like very much yes, you can summon demons, but it's gonna take months and months and months of fasting and sex magic, and even then it might might not work and the demons are going to manifest themselves in like synchronicities rather than like a fucking dragon coming out of the ground. Yeah. I guess to, to get a little more detail there, the purpose of the ritual specifically again is to obtain like quote knowledge and conversation with one's guardian angel. The ritual itself can take anywhere from like six to 18 months to complete. It involves regular prayer, abstinence, fasting, etc. Now where the movie diverges is that, you know, with the original process, eventually you get to a point where you have to summon and bind the 12 kings and dukes of hell, which that's like where the fucking metal shit comes in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah. So, <laughs> you have to summon the kings and dukes of hell. So again, this is, you know, Lucifer, Satan, Leviathan, Baal, Asmodeus, all those other assholes. All, all the people you summon in Persona 5. Yeah. But you have to, like, bind them in order to remove their negative influence from your life and leave you with familiars that will then do your bidding. So it's interesting because it starts as a very Kabbalistic consciousness-altering kind of magic ritual, but then it just straight up goes into more goetic magic stuff, which is all like summon demons to do bullshit for you. And again, these demons aren't going to be like dragons coming at your floor. They're going to be like, oh, my light decided to pop for no reason, and now a bird flew into my window at the same time. Yeah, that's how you you know it's working as you start to see these like synchronicities you know in air quotes happening in your life so a very very dumbed down version of this kind of magic and really just magic in real life a very 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 like stripped down easy to access version of it is the secret of like making a vision <laughs> that's board. what i'm saying yeah like, it's, it's pretty much the secret on like massive steroids yeah it's the secret it's fucking tony robbins kind of bullshit yeah, yeah that's vision all boards is. but instead of having a shitty cardboard cut out it's like let's Let's turn yeah. an entire empty house into chalk. Just and know candles. if you're into Pinterest, Pinterest is essentially just this kind of magic. <laughs> it's yeah. chaos magic, yeah. But yeah, the the book of Abramelin historically.
Exactly. You know, it obviously like whether you believe in magic or not, whatever. Like you said, this is historical magic. Like this is stuff that has been documented throughout history, several different places, etc. The earliest manuscripts are from the 1600s and they're written in German and nobody's like really sure of what their origins are necessarily. But there's been other copies found. There's been like print copies found from the 1700s as well. What's crazy is that like as recent as 2009, an Italian copy was found that's from the 1700s and it was like accidentally found in a fucking library like in the esoteric section somebody just happened across it like oh wait shit this is that other thing and this is actually kind of important and it's like the only version known in Italian you know it's it's one of those things that it's been around for a long time but it's just you know not part of mainstream theology or religion because it's you know more esoteric I was just gonna say and I'd like to politely remind to take this opportunity to play remind our listeners those who actually practice magic that's awesome and met all of you please don't like one star us because we have no idea what we're talking about because we don't have any idea (laughs) what we're talking about we have general idea like very very slim general ideas off of like last podcast on the left and then our other listeners who believe in nothing fun and think there's no magic (laughs) in the world aka like basically me yeah (laughs) five stars us on on itunes we really appreciate your your listenership and you know please continue listening (laughs) yeah i mean again we're reading fucking wikipedia here just to kind of like have a better understanding of what this movie's doing anyway where this kind of crosses over into some more like ooky spooky stuff is uh the book was translated into english in 1897 by the british occultist samuel mcgregor mathers god these guys have the coolest names samuel mcgregor mathers he was the head of the hermetic order of the golden dawn like you mentioned earlier which was basically just a giant group of nerds like trying to change the world through sex magic but another member alistair crowley he began the ritual at a country house in Scotland, but didn't quite complete it. He would later split from the Hermetic Order and go on to found Thelema, which was his own, like, weird ooky-spooky magic cult bullshit. But he claims to have successfully performed the Abermelon ritual while on a trip to China, but he's kind of iffy about the results because he was smoking a shit ton of hash at the time. Hell yeah. (laughs) So he performed the ritual again in 1908 in Paris, you know, this time without the drug. And, um, you know, eventually he claims to have developed his own method of, like, reaching the same goal and all this other bullshit. So, again, like, you know, whether you believe in magic or not, sure, whatever. But, you know, from a history aspect, it's interesting. Like, I find the history of cults and all these different systems of belief and groups and all that, like, it's all fascinating to me. You know, that's one of the things that does cross over into, like, the Hellboy comics that I like a lot is that there's definitely, like, a lot of that history bullshit that's our kind of pseudo-magic. Magical European and kind of world history that's woven into that story. Yeah, I, I love this kind of stuff too. I'm probably a little more open to a lot of this stuff than maybe you are, which is fine if you aren't, because I mean, there's a lot of leaps in logic, but what I'm about to say kind of does go hand in hand, tying it all back to a dark song to the movie we're tackling today. It's a little bit of a stretch, but you could actually take this as these are two people who just put themselves in such a weird mental headspace that they're both collectively hallucinating all of this, because a lot of the idea too behind everyday magic or real life magic is a lot of people think that it might just literally be tricking your brain into believing a certain thing and being able to like subconsciously manipulate it into giving you what you are seeking and if that's all that is that's still there's still something there there's still something that's actually happening to you whether it's entities from another dimension or it's just all in your own head and you're literally rewiring your brain to think a certain way well again it's just 
just that change of perspective kind of aspect. It's finding a more positive outlook on things. It's developing a sense of confidence in yourself and having like a drive and a motivation to do things. You know, if you go through this whole fucking process for eight goddamn months and you're fasting and you're going through all these rituals and all this painstaking bullshit, you could probably come out of the other side of it and look at your day-to-day life and be like, you know, I can get through this. Yeah. <laughs> I saw the face of God. Fuck off. <laughs> I'm not doing your TP. Yeah, report. really. Like, I I touched a fucking guardian angel, you know, while I was basically losing my mind from, like, dehydration and, you know, not eating for months. Um, so, yeah, I can totally, like, get through my taxes this year. <laughs> and if it's all in your head, but it's still doing this to you, that's just as magical to me. I mean, I still find it fascinating, like, this idea of it's kind of meeting halfway in between, like, your own physical world and your mind and maybe something else, some energy, untapped energy out there. That's kind of more of what I lean towards is it's kind of like meeting in the middle and not yeah. necessarily swayed one way or the other but hey if you're someone who believes it's all mystical that's great and if you're someone who believes it's all just in the mind and it's all you doing it to yourself that's great too anyway um we have spent quite a long time just kind of discussing the background of, of this specific text and i think we both agree that it was kind of needed because it kind of helps enhance the discussion of this movie because what this movie does is show you and we've been talking about like how metal the sounds and like the actual ideas behind the ritual and the history is pretty metal. The actual doing of the ritual is not metal. Fucking miserable. <laughs> yeah, most of the time, like, I mean, there are like glimpses of metal parts to it, but most of the time it's fucking miserable. And this movie very much lives in that, like, again, it avoids exposition dump. Like, it's like, no, it's going to show you how fucking miserable it is to actually do this ritual. And it doesn't make any bones about it right at the beginning because Solomon himself yeah. is just constantly like, are you sure you want to do this? This is going to fucking suck. You're going to be fasting no sex dehydrated for months like are you ready to do this and like that's exactly what this movie dives into and there's a lot of horror there on top of just being sequestered in the middle of nowhere with a stranger a stranger that not only is a stranger but kind of a shitty guy yeah as well. like a stranger who's also fucking antagonistic towards you yeah at times yeah yeah and then on top of that you are going to be woken up in the middle of the night you're going to be starved you're going to be fucking denied sex have fun yeah no modern comforts at all yeah so Joseph explains that as the ritual begins, it's going to take several months, you know, and that they can't leave the house at all. They literally do like the salt circle around the outside of the house. And that once they close that protection circle, they can't fucking leave. Otherwise, like they risk some kind of harm or danger. Like that's kind of all he like says in yeah, loose terms. Their life basically gets kind of fucked. Yeah. While they're putting together this massive grocery and supplies list for the next, you know, months, Sophia notices that Joseph doesn't really look well, and he kind of explains that he's also detoxing from alcoholism. He says, I live a hard life. I abuse alcohol. Like, you know, like, this guy probably lives a very, like, shitty, lonely existence. That's kind of how it goes, I'm sure, if you're, like, into this kind of magic. So, we kind of, it humanizes him a little bit. And he even says in one of those, like, kind of in a passing line, I do this to deal with the horror of yeah. shit I've seen, basically. I constantly, like, do drugs and drink to kind of just get myself out of the mind space. Last thing, too, we see her unpacking all of her stuff, and she's got a photo of her and her son that she, like, kind of tucks away, and then she's got one of his toys. It's like a little goblin action figure thing. And then we also see Joseph kind of tuck a bottle of whiskey away in his drawer as well. I mean, he kind of looks at it grudgingly because he knows he's not supposed to be drinking during the process, but he's still kind 
kind of tucks it away. But yeah, cut to Sophia at the grocery store. She's packing groceries into her car while Solomon is preparing the house. She kind of gets distracted in the parking lot and she sees this weird kind of figure in a hoodie with like long kind of flowing gray hair. It's like this old woman in the parking lot with a young child. She sees this person like from between the cars and this old woman is like crouched over this child who's on the ground and she's tickling the kid. Um, It's just really creepy. Leading up to it, there's like whispers in the wind calling to her and that kind of leads her to do it and then leads to a false jump scare of this other woman who recognizes her like grabbing her shoulder and being like, oh, you're out? Kind of surprised to see her. It's her sister, yeah. But all of a sudden she reveals to us, oh, so Sophia has been in a psych hospital for some period of time after her son's death. That's kind of the first thing she says like, oh shit, you're out. And then as they're kind of sitting having coffee, her sister, who is very religious and is afraid of all this kind of dark bullshit that Sophia is getting into, you know, she's kind of saying like, no, fuck all this. You need help. Come stay with us. We will take care of you, you know. And Sophia basically tells her sister like, fuck you, fuck God, fuck religion, like all that bullshit. I am doing this because I have tried everything else to deal with it. And this is kind of the last thing, you know, so no, stay away from me. Period. Earlier when Solomon was kind of interviewing her, one of the questions he specifically asked her is, are you of a Christian faith, like Catholic or Protestant? And she says she, she said Catholic. Catholic yeah. so. so after Sophia and Joseph get the house prepared, they're kind of sitting that evening like at the fire outside. And Joseph asks her, can you speak several languages? Like, can you speak French? Can you speak, you know, Latin? You know, do you speak German? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I speak German. And then all of a sudden he like cuts himself while he's whittling. And he's like, look, see, see, you know, you fucking lied. You don't speak German. Look, I cut myself. You know, that was not an accident. This kind of magic has consequences and you can't fucking lie and you can't deceive me anymore. And you have to be truthful in everything you do. And he's like fucking berating her about this because he fucking cut himself. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. See, this is the magic. You know, you you don't actually speak German. So you're already kind of getting maybe a whiff of like this guy's full of shit, you know? We're not to the point in the movie where, like, things are happening and we're seeing anything yet. But, of course, this is the most obvious con man, like, oh, yeah, see? See what you made me do? See what happened? But at the same time, like, she doesn't speak German either. <laughs> or, yeah, like, exactly. she doesn't speak influently, at least. Yeah, she said, I can make myself understood, which that is not the same thing as I yeah. speak German. <laughs> yeah, even says, it's totally fine if you don't. Just fucking tell me if you don't so we can work on that. Yeah, but it's an interesting moment like i said because you do kind of start to get doubts around whether or not this guy is legit or if he is just potentially conning her because she's paying him tens of thousands of dollars like she's paying him like fucking eighty thousand pounds or something like that so you're kind of wondering like is this legit but it is interesting because earlier in the movie when like before she admits to him that it's about talking to her dead son when he still thinks it's just oh for love and they're at the train station he's about to leave she's just like i will pay you over 80,000 pounds to stay and he actually says no to that like he says yeah. like, no like it's not about the fucking money it's about doing the actual ritual for like a real reason and, and getting out of bed in the morning and then that's when she finally admits talking to her son so it's kind of still up in the air so what exactly does he want because he could have easily just said like okay fine I'll take all your money yeah well the other side of it too is that he also gets to ask the guardian angel for some kind of favor and we don't know like what his goal 
is yeah. either. So yeah, the next day we see them walking around the perimeter of the house with a bucket, like dumping salt and pouring the protective circle around the house. And again, you know, he kind of reiterates to her like, look, once this circle's closed, we absolutely cannot leave this house, period. You know, not until the ritual's complete, you know, otherwise we literally risk our existence. Can't even open like the front door either. Yeah. You're just in the house now. <laughs> the next morning, Joseph like fills up a bucket of water and walks into Sophia's room and like splashes her and wakes her up all of a sudden and just starts fucking laying into her and yelling at her because she slept in. So immediately it's not off to a good start. Like she didn't get up and do like the morning prayers and all that other kind of bullshit and he's already like treating her like a dog. And he's like making her because like at one point she even says like Solomon or calls him by his first name and he's just like Mr. And then she's just like Mr. Solomon. Like it's very much almost like a boot camp instructor at some points but he is like yeah he's being incredibly abusive because even like right after he throws the water on her like she's glaring at him at the kitchen table still covered in water and like shaking and he's like don't fucking look at me like that woman yeah and he's kind of yeah he's being condescending about it for sure but he's trying to like make her understand like look you know you wanted this you're paying me you're here if you're all about this for real like we're doing it it's too late to turn back now yeah again he's in the right but at the same time he's just doing such a he's such a shit shit about it like he's such a shitty asshole about it yeah while they're having that conversation in the kitchen he's cutting mushrooms up and he makes her eat a slice of a mushroom she's you know like no i don't want to eat that it's like fucking eat it you know you gotta purge you gotta like cleanse yourself so she eats this mushroom that immediately just makes her like puke and we just see her throwing up the ritual in and of itself you know they're kind of getting started but they had to prepare their bodies for it so now we kind of have a scene where they're in the main room of this mansion and he's already got the circles drawn around the floor and all the other symbols and sigils written in chalk on the floor and he's wearing a robe and all this other bullshit and candles everywhere and he's walking her through and explaining to her the framework of like how it's going to work so the whole process of this ritual is built around a framework of moving from one stage of power to another so it's represented by like these chalk circles on the floor of the main room there's four smaller circles around a larger circle in the center and at each stage you're going to like invoke your guardian angel and as Sophia moves around this circuit she's performing different acts of attrition like again fasting consciousness alteration sleep deprivation all these kind of things but as she moves from circle to circle she's becoming more powerful and therefore she's more capable of summoning her guardian angel and he kind of tells her like it could happen at any time throughout this circuit but you're probably going to have to get to like the fourth or fifth circle before you know things would actually happen and that's if the process even fucking works you know and each circle is a, a different element and a different example of existence like at one point it's like the void another point it's you know fire water earth yeah it's all this nerdy technical bullshit <laughs> so this is like one of the minor moments of like kind of metal but also still just like this is miserable <laughs> Yeah. There's lots of like time jumps in this because it's taking course over months, right? So there's not like a distinct timeline. Like I'm not going to say like the next day in all circumstances, but anyway, eventually, you know, one day while she's meditating, the door of the room that Sophia's in just opens on its own and a candle blows out. And you can kind of look at the scene as like, oh, a fucking draft hit the house and like, you know, opened the door and blew out this candle. But you could also totally look at it as, oh yeah, shit's happening. And so she gets up and she goes downstairs you know and she's telling joseph 
about it and she's asking him like how do we know when the ritual is actually starting to take effect and he said oh well, there's going to be synchronicities and there's going to be like weird happenings and oh by the way have you heard that dog barking at night and she's like no I haven't heard a dog you know I don't know what you're talking about and then all of a sudden a bird flies into the kitchen window like smack blood smeared dead bird and he's like oh there we go that's it that's a sign things are happening and again it's one of those like wait are you fucking kidding me like because even she's like oh that was just a bird flying into a window and he's just like nope it was a blackbird check it was it a blackbird and like they have all the windows covered up so she has to like move a blanket out of the way and she like tries to look down and it's out of view like she can't see it and she's like I can't even see where it landed it might have flown off or something he's like nope that was totally a blackbird I saw it when it hit the window Yeah, and it is interesting because like when he's talking about that dog barking there is a scene where it might have been when either she was meditating or somewhere else where you hear a dog barking in the background but it's probably just one of those things where like either she didn't hear it and only us as the audience heard it or it's one of those things where you're just so used to maybe in an urban environment like background noise that she just ignored it completely so yes Stuff is happening, like, but you're still very much at that point of just, it could all just be coincidence or it could all just be synchronicities involved with this ritual. So after months of performing these grueling and painful exercises, like we see her sitting in one of the circles where like she's had to sit in it for two days fasting with no sleep. And then we see her, you know, in a different circle where he has a trestle set up where cold water just drips on her endlessly while she like chants and meditates. Meanwhile, he's in these fucking mage robes when they're doing stuff like this and he looks ridiculous when he's in those mage robes. They eventually get to a point where they have to do a forgiveness ceremony and she just refuses to do it. You know, she just tells him, like, I don't fucking do forgiveness. Can we get around it? Can we skip this part? Can we substitute? No, I'm not fucking doing this part of the ceremony. And he's like, all right, cool. Like, fine. Well, to make up for that, you know, fuck it. You're going to have to have a blood sacrifice. And so he slices his arm with a razor and bleeds into a glass and forces her to drink his blood. And she's fucking already on the edge of hallucinating because she's been going through all these fasting and rituals and staying up and everything. Um, She's like nearly vomiting, choking down this blood. She kind of has one of those like weird moments where, you know, she goes through it and then, you know, snaps too and the glass is still there, still full. And he's saying, yeah, you've got to drink it. So it's kind of like the deja vu moment where she thinks like, wait, I've already done this. What are you talking about? We see her kind of power through it. Because she starts gagging, understandably. And he's like screaming at her like, don't you dare fucking throw up. Yeah. This is what happens when you refuse to forgive, blah, blah, blah. And as we're going through like the montage over the months of like them doing parts of the ritual, there's other scenes that are kind of intertwined in this of things happening uh, around the house nothing major yet but it's like them drawing and painting symbols on things and making the like circles more elaborate and copying other symbols and documents and that kind of bullshit and like even at one point he's writing I don't know if they were Mandarin symbols on her body and like there's a pause because like she's doing it in just her bra and he's like writing them all over the her back and there's a pause she unstraps her bra and he pauses for a second and then they start continuing on and then other stuff too like more paranormal kind of related stuff is like she has this weird dream specifically about where she sees her son with this weird old woman and like as soon as her son is turning around she can't see his face and she wakes up. He's having to do almost just as much work and preparation as she is like we see him also having to do the fasting and the prayers and all that kind of stuff so it's not just him being boot camp instructor and making her miserable like he's also having to do a 
lot of this as well. Yeah, and then also too, just kind of like she keeps finding the goblin toy in weird areas, or like yeah. she'll wake up and it's all of a sudden it's just gone, yeah, gone, or it's standing there right next to her on her bedside table, or like it'll be in the middle of the hallway, or just yeah. in random places. Um, but yeah, there is even a point where like it just straight up is going missing, and well, to that point, there's a moment where, like you said, she goes back up to her room, she looks at the photo, she goes to find the toy, just as like a touch point for her to like remember why she's doing this and the toy's gone so later that evening they're kind of sitting and having a philosophical conversation kind of about why joseph has like dedicated his life to pursuing the occult and he's all talking about it's knowledge it's power it's like the pursuit of like that as an end goal and blah 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 right but she point blank asks him like have you been in my room have you been going through my things and he's just like no i don't i don't know what you're talking about so again is he fucking lying did he go up there did he get the toy did he move it did he do all this stuff to like spoop her out or are things actually starting to happen was this the same question or the same conversation where she questions like oh science isn't enough yeah it's all part of that conversation also, one th- one thing to note, if they're supposed to be, like, cleansing and abstaining from, like, alcohol and substances and all this other stuff, they fucking smoke a lot. Yeah. Um, not weed, but, like, they're they're definitely, like, smoking cigarettes constantly. They gotta have something to take away the edge, I guess. Yeah, but- I guess. Anyway, one night while going through the ritual, Sophia hears sounds coming from the floor. She's sitting in the circle in the middle of the floor in the main room, and she's hearing, like, these scrapings and these knockings against the floor. And Joseph claims that it's spirits from another plane of existence that are, like, becoming aware of their presence as, like, the veil between these fucking planes is, like, kind of becoming thin and they're getting through the ritual. And she's kind of, you know, again, skeptical of that. But then all of a sudden the floor, like bam bumps like really loudly and he quickly runs over and like writes a chalk sigil on top of that exact spot to like seal it so again it's just more of the like is the ooky spooky stuff happening or not well and could very well even just be like an animal on, under the floorboards yeah but, like the whole idea too behind like the salt circle around the house is that they have unhinged the house from their own reality and turned it into like this nexus that's in between all yeah. the planes of existence which is kind of like how they're trying to uh summon the guardian angel and so that is the idea of like if you leave the salt circle when the, the house is still unhinged from their own reality you could yeah. get lost or invite all this awful shit in your life and kind of shortly after too the blood like drinking the blood you know there is also a lot a bunch of scenes of like them being very they've been butting heads like I mean he's been a prick to her all, all movie but it's gonna the point now where like it's been a couple months and shit's not really like going as quickly as she wants it to and she starts talking back to him and butting heads against him because after he makes her drink the blood he also says that, they had, that they've now reached a part where they have to have sex as part of the ritual since she's no longer going to be doing the forgiveness part. And this is a really triggering scene. Um, It could be very much a triggering scene for anyone who's really like been in a situation like this or have dealt with sexual assault or just being used uh, sexually. This is definitely like the second most fucked up thing he does to her. Yeah, like this is one of like one of those little like or not little one of those unforgivable things I'd mentioned earlier in our episode. This is one of them to me because he first tells her like go to your 
your bathroom and put on makeup and she's like put on makeup he's just like what I'm a man like I want you to look good for me basically and so she does that she comes back and he basically manipulates her into taking off her clothes and he just masturbates she turns around is like what are you doing realizes what he did and gathers up all her clothes and is like what the fuck is your problem and he's just like I just it's been months I need to concentrate on this ritual yeah like he he kind of reemphasizes that like no there is no fucking ritual sex in this it's all about abstinence it's all about chastity like so he lied to her basically I, I fucking lied to you just because I needed to fucking like have some release and clear my head you know so like which is that's fucked up so yeah. fuck that's so fucked up fuck you bro yeah and I completely supported her decision granted you know it might be childish but you know she, she storms off for the night so the next morning you see her in the bathroom and you see her doing something and you like that goes to her like making some kind of soup on the stove for breakfast and she then takes out this bowl and it's of her own piss and then dumps it into the soup stirs it in a little bit and then like he walks in and of course they're being really awkward with each other because he was a fucking asshole and did that and she's just like I'm not hungry serve your fucking self here's breakfast and basically leaves him in the kitchen yeah, the movie just kind of leaves it at that too. yeah and he does start making his way towards the soup so I'm, he probably ate some piss so good yeah. on you because fuck that guy for doing that so yeah sometime later we see Sophia kind of angrily trying to leave you know a few months later and like they're having another argument where you know she's just telling him like look fuck this you're full of shit this is taking forever nothing worked you know and now you're telling me like we have to do this again what the fuck I'm not doing all this over this is bullshit blah 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 so she's trying to storm out and he's claiming like okay like look sometimes it takes multiple attempts it doesn't always work the first time you know you have to like get perfect at it this doesn't have any room for like error but you can't fucking leave the house and she's like going to walk out the front door and this is where like he really is showing again he is a true believer he's not some fucking charlatan he's not a con man like he really is bought into all this because he is like begging crying pleading like do not leave we will both be fucked if you leave this house this is where things do start to happen, yeah, because he convinces her, like, no, stay, we have to do this again, and we see a montage of them going through all the steps that we've already seen. They're repeating yeah. all the same stuff that we've seen so far for the second time. This time, she wakes up, she's walking down the hallway, and she notices this small pile of pink flower blossoms, like, sitting on the carpet. And there's no way that those would have blown inside the house. Everything is sealed up, they've been in there for months, and these are, like, fresh flower blossoms and you know they take it as like another sign that the ritual's working but it's to the point where like you said we then see her in the main room and this golden flake some like weird little like it's it's hard to describe but it literally is just like a fleck of paint almost falls from the ceiling and lands on the floor in front of her and then all this shower of these like golden kind of ethereal flakes start falling while she's in the center circle so now like okay she's a hundred percent like yeah this is real shit's happening like we're making it work this time so now she's like dedicated she's in it she's doing everything with like a new kind of vigor because she's now like bought into it as well there's also even like kind of one or two signs of like maybe something a little bit more malevolent is around too because yeah there's one or two jump scares thrown in here where like they're hearing noises outside there's a couple scenes where like she'll be walking at night or like by herself in the house and there'll be like a shadow move in the background there's other signs that there's shit in the house that's fucking with them and kind of the thing that I thought was interesting going back to like where she's kind of lost it her patience with him and she's about to leave 
leave and he begs her to stay. A part of me read that scene. It's not so much that this isn't working because there is shit that we both have seen and heard that is hard to explain. Like it has worked to a point, but it's taking too long. But I think also too, a part of the reason why she's like, fuck this is he's been such a prick to her for so long and she's gone through yeah. all this suffering. She's kind of fed up with him. It's not, I, I, I didn't read it as she's fed up with the ritual. She's just using that as kind of the excuse. I think it's more that she's just fed up with his bullshit and is like, I'm done. This is taking too long. Fuck you. I'm out of here. I don't know if you read that scene the same way. I mean, I think through the entire first process, she is still questioning whether or not any of this is real or whether or not any of it's working. And it just gets to a point where like, none of it worked. And now you're telling me we have to do it again. You're a fucking liar. You're full of shit. No, fuck this. I'm leaving. But it takes going through it that second time. And then she starts to kind of see some fruits of her labor that she's like, okay, no, I'm bought in now. And, you know, she still has some moments of doubt. Like, you know, after the golden flakes, <laughs> the golden shower, uh, <laughs> you know, she summons like these flakes of gold light out of nowhere. She kind of has this argument where, you know, she's complaining about how long it's taking. And Joseph kind of suggests like, look, you know, maybe this is not going well because you're not being fucking honest about what your intentions really are. You know, like if this ritual is going to work, you have to be completely like transparent and honest with your intentions. And this is the point where she reveals that. Oh boy, this movie takes a turn right here. (laughs) Yeah, she reveals that she does not necessarily intend to like use her wish from the guardian angel to like talk to her son she wants to fucking ask the guardian angel for vengeance against the people who murdered her child so this is all just boiling down to like i want to get fucking revenge and that's you know like what my end goal here is and that's like a whole new level of like jesus fucking christ if you had told me from the beginning we wouldn't be here because he flips out understandably and like yeah he's like why the fuck did you not tell me this originally and she's just like if I told you that it was for revenge and not for like speaking to the dead I don't think you would have done it he's like no I fucking would have done it I still would have done it you just needed to be honest with me from the get go all I've been saying for like the last several months is you need to be fucking honest and he just storms off and she's just kind of like left with you know like where do we go from here Yeah, I think it follows into his room and he's like running through all the books freaking the fuck out like how do we fix this yeah so yeah he wakes her up in the middle of the night and says like look I figured it out I know what we're gonna have to do because you've been fucking dishonest this entire time you're now impure so we have to do a rebirthing ritual to like make you anew essentially so he makes her get into the bathtub that he's filled up with water ice cold (laughs) again and he's repeatedly like dunking her in the water and like pouring water over her and saying verses over her in kind of a baptismal kind of way he's invoking multiple deities which is interesting because like it's horrible Horus, someone else. It was like Horus, Bale, and Christ. Yeah, it was like a yeah. weird, like, three people walk into a bar kind of thing. Yeah, so it's like Jesus Christ, and I guess Horus is, was viewed as more, as more of a benevolent Egyptian god, and I think the other person was also viewed as more of a benevolent deity. Well, Bale's one of the demons, I think. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, Hell, yeah, 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 you're right. He is, so I don't know why it was those three, but yeah. Yeah, but eventually he, like, holds her under. He's, like, dunking her at one point, but he holds her under, finally, to the point where 
where she fucking drowns. She's kicking and pushing and he's shoving her under the water to the point where like she just stops moving and she's like fucking fish flopped in the tub. And he gets up and it's taking some time and the music's kind of ramping up. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Yeah, he's gotta he he's gotta wake her up. He's gotta wake her up. And yeah. he stands there and he's just staring and he starts kind of pacing back and forth and he flips through his book and finds the right incantation and starts like speaking the incantation and then he pulls her out and revives her like with CPR you know he gives her mouth to mouth and gets her heart going again then cuts downstairs while she's in the kitchen with a towel like arguing with him about like I cannot fucking believe like you literally just killed me you fucking killed me to me this is the most unforgivable thing that like you put all your trust in this person and they're like yeah we're gonna do a rebirthing process it'll be okay and they fucking murder you like they literally like kill you they drown you to the point where you are dead fuck that so it's understandable that like she has no trust in him at this point and he uh he's like also like yeah i did a good job i saved the ritual by drowning your ass he's like all just very content with himself and he's just like congratulations you've been reborn you're pure again he's just like yeah i fucking you touch the void yeah Yeah. but yeah she fucking angrily shoves him into the counter and he you know knocks over the dish rack as he falls and he accidentally fucking stabs himself in the side with one of the big kitchen knives that was in the dish rack and when he say like stabs himself it's impaled this is like a fucking 10 inch chef's knife impaled through his side fucking in one end out the other yeah like it's sticking out the other side <laughs> yeah and once again he's like oh god this is a fucking sign the ritual's working this is punishment for me because I wasn't honest with you about what we had to do but like it's working this is good Jesus fucking Christ get this thing out of me right so she like goes and gets just the basic medical kit kind yeah, of thing they don't really have medical supplies yeah as she's treating his wound he's saying like you will have your revenge and they kind of talk a little bit further to each other about like why they went into this and she explains to him that who she's getting revenge on is that apparently there were a group of teenagers that abducted her son right after school like she was running late to pick him up yeah and they abducted her son and they went out and performed some kind of ritual themselves like a ritualistic sacrifice on her son they don't go into the details from there they don't say like like what they were trying to accomplish or whatever that they just murder her son. She kind of makes it out to be a little West Memphis 3 yeah. as far as like what allegedly happened, blah, blah, blah. It's just teenagers fucking around and they murdered this kid. Yeah, and then apparently the case was thrown out. They never found out, found the kids who did it. They closed it and everything. And so she wants the kids basically not only to just die, but die slowly and painfully. And for their souls to be damned. And for their souls to be damned. Yeah. And like, it's funny because like as he's listening King, this is like one of the first times he's actually taking what she's saying seriously and like not talking back to her or talking down to her he is like kind of cracking jokes of just like we're all damned you don't have to yeah. worry about that we're already like most of us are already fucked and like I'm sure they are already fucked and like he even kind of just kind of scoffs at man damning teenagers what what does this world come to he also kind of cracks a joke oh so you don't like any of us do you and she's like what do you mean he's just like you know people who perform rituals he's just like no I just I want these teenagers to suffer like I'm not pointing out that like occultists are the reason he finally kind of reveals what his favor is that he wants to ask the angel is that he wants to basically become invisible for the rest of his life so he can just be away from people till he dies to just kind of have some peace before the hell is the way he describes it yeah and i, I kind of took it as metaphorically invisible just nobody will ever notice him he won't be on anybody's radar nobody will be looking for him just yeah. everybody will leave him alone essentially yeah like not literally invisible man invisible yeah. just completely cut off from the world yeah 
kind of going back to what you mentioned earlier, while meditating, Sophia kind of hears the faint voice of a child coming from another room in the house. So she gets up and she walks out of the room and into the hallway. And there's a door down the hallway that the voice is coming from, but the door is fucking shaking. This whole door is like rattling, like really fucking hard, like something's trying to get out. And she walks over to the door and opens it and there's nothing in there. It's just one of the empty fucking bedrooms in this giant house. Then we see this dark figure just walk through the fucking room behind her really fast, like from one end of the room to the other. And this was a fucking good jump scare because we see it over her shoulder and it's literally just this dark blur of a person walk through the room behind her. And she kind of senses that presence and like goes into that room and looks around and doesn't see anything, but she can tell like something's off. Oh boy, is this scene scary too, by the way. Yeah. I was waiting for like demonic face jump scare. Granted, it doesn't happen, Yeah, but it's still Again, effective. it's just more of like the subtle bullshit that's going on. Yeah. You know, we then go to like another night. The power goes out and they're down there like fucking with the breakers. Joseph's wound is slowly becoming infected. You know, like they're treating it as best they can, but they basically just have this little like first aid kit and that's it. She all of poured some whiskey on it, sewed it up and put a bandage on it, you know, earlier. So it's getting infected and he's kind of struggling to continue the ritual. Like he's not remembering stuff and he's physically just not up for it. And there's that gnarly scene like where there's pus coming out of the wound as he's cleaning it one night and like him puking. And also too, like more of these menacing presences are manifesting themselves mostly to Sophia um, because that voice behind the door and then like her opening it and then there's that figure. The voice comes back this time clearly as her son. Yeah. And it's in the hallway and I think it's to the outside door, like to the, the, the front door. It's trying to taunt her like to come out. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like the dog that they've been kind of mentioning throughout the movie and like you hear it's barking is like you hear the dog there. growling. Yeah. Yeah. And out there and this kid who sounds like her son or whatever it is, is saying that it's coming for him. And like, why did you leave? Like, why are you leaving me alone? Let me in mom. And she's just like, I know it's not you. I know it's not my son. Yeah. She kind of like backs away from the door as it's screaming and kind of backs into Solomon and Solomon holds her for a minute and he's just like, don't be afraid. Uh, they feed off your fear and like that is not your son. She's like, I know, but it, it was still his voice yeah. um, and kind of comforts her. And then, so this is one of the creepier scenes to me. This is the thing that I mentioned. This is the creepiest moment in the movie to me and it freaked me the fuck out when I first yeah. saw it. While she's laying in the floor studying, she's like going through the books and all the symbols and copying down stuff. She kind of senses a presence on the other side of the room. Like, you know how it is like when you're like in a room by yourself and you think you're by yourself, but then like somebody else walks into that room and you can just kind of know that they're there. That's what this is. But she looks over and there's an armchair sitting by the fireplace and there's kind of this dark, shadowy impression of a person like sitting there and smoking. You see like the fiery cherry of a cigarette kind of glowing brighter and dimmer just sitting there. You see like a slight wisp of smoke coming up. I had to rewatch the scene because at first I thought it was like an eyeball, like glowing red eye or something. I literally had to like shut the blinds to stop letting like the daylight in so I could see it clearer. And the second time I realized it was a shadowy figure smoking. She gets up slow and grabs the lantern or the candle and walks to the other side of the room toward it. And there's like a deep, bassy, unintelligible, like muffled voice coming from it that's really disturbing.
so she gets closer with the candle. God, yeah, the scene is so terrible. Finds that like nothing's in the chair. There is just a coat laying over the chair. But then she looks down, and there's a fucking still lit cigarette just sitting in the ashtray. Yep. Yeah, and this is by far the like creepiest fucking moment of the movie to me, easily. It's like one of those things where if you've ever like woke up in the middle of the night, or you're you're up at night and you're in a dark room, or you only have like one light on and the lights by you, it's like a lamp, and you see a blanket or a coat or something hanging either on a hook or like on your chair and it looks like a person just because the way the the lighting is and the shadows are this scene plays on that fear it looks exactly like a person you have to get up turn on the light or go over to it to make sure it's not actually a person yeah and that's exactly what it is so was this like the scariest scene you've seen in like recent this is one of the scariest things that i've seen in a recent movie in the last bunch of years like it's pretty fucking scary yeah sticks out to me specifically and it's not a jump scare either. Like, that's what's yeah, crazy. No, this is the definition of some slow creeping dread. Yeah, like, it's fucking terrifying. It's not even a uh it's But it's not so even unsettling. Scare. It's so relatable. That's the main thing. It's like you said, everybody's had that moment where, like, you're in a dark room and you think somebody else is in there with you and you think you see something, but it's just a coat or whatever. It reminded me of the shadow people from Night Terrors when we watched The yeah. Nightmare. Yeah. So she gets up and, like, goes to Joseph's room and climbs in bed with him for comfort she's fucking disturbed by this and like really creeped out but she finds that she's kind of more comforting him at this point because he is like feverish and shaking and just delirious and he's talking about wanting to see his mom or his sister like yeah or his sister yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a sister to me this scene was like he knew he was he knew this was it basically yeah she wakes up the next morning to find that joseph is dead so he died in bed that night from you know the infection sepsis just like whatever the fuck finally got to him with the stab wound and she's lost at this point she doesn't know what the fuck to do we just see her like sitting around the house kind of staring not sure she's going through her notes and everything and she starts going through all of his books to try to find some further instruction on like what the fuck do I do now and she basically finds that everything in his books has been like scratched out crossed out it's completely unreadable yeah like on purpose too yeah it's not like Madman Scratch. Like, I don't think it was him who did it. Exactly, yeah. It was definitely like there was another person or force yeah. that did this to his book. We've seen enough at this point in the movie where we know, like, okay, there are actually malevolent forces that are, like, trying to get in and fuck with them. Yeah. Again, you could still read this movie as it's all just psychological between the two of them. Yeah. Like, you could go that route. It's hard to do, especially towards the end. It becomes more explicit by the end, yeah. But you could still kind of go that route of, of it all just being kind of hallucination from yeah. starvation and all of that. So, out of desperation, Sophia just says, fuck it. And we see her, like, go out the front door and kind of firmly step beyond the perimeter of the salt ring. It's a nice bit of acting, too, because she makes that pause. It's almost like a, you, when you hear stories of uh, people who are atheist or, or just no longer religious, and they're cleaning out their house, and they come across their old Bible, and, like, they pause when they throw away their Bible. Like, I've heard that a couple times from people where, like, they're cleaning out their rooms, they came across their Bible, and they had a really weird feeling just throwing it away or getting rid of it. Yeah. It's kind of like that, where it's just, I don't know if I actually believe in this, but I'm still very 
very reluctant to actually tempt it, basically. Yeah. Also, just one continuity thing. That fucking circle of salt would have been dissolved. It's raining constantly throughout this movie. To me, it looked very worn out and dissolved. It was worn out, but it was still there, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, she goes to the car. The car won't start. Womp so, womp. she starts just walking down the, like, main kind of desolate highland road that leads to the mansion. Eventually, she kind of discovers to her horror that she has arrived right back at the fucking mansion again. And the countryside of Wales that she's walking through, it still seems sort of realistic, but it's very ethereal. There's a bunch of rain clouds everywhere, but it's not raining. It's really quiet. There's no other cars around, no other people around at all. It's just kind of like our world, but if everyone disappeared in it, basically. So exactly what Saul was afraid of has kind of happened at this point is Joseph warned her, like, if you leave, you know, we'll be stuck here forever. And that's essentially, you know, what's going on. She took the entire road. We see her walk the entire way that she kind of came in in the car, but then she just ends right back up at the mansion. And when she re-enters the mansion, now all shit's of a sudden, fucked. shit's fucked. Shit's fucked, bro. <laughs> Everything is in disarray. The house is more messed up. The house is more menacing. Like, the paint is peeling. Yeah. There's lots of shit markings smears on shit markings smears. all yeah, over the yeah. walls. Like, there's just gross stuff everywhere. There's, like, a pile of vomit yeah. in the middle of the hallway with the photo of her son just stuck in it. And we see her pull that photo out and, like, go wash it out. But Joseph's body is now, like, at the foot of the stairs. Yeah, like, it's been dragged out of his room and just thrown down the stairs, basically. Yeah. And she's sitting on the staircase that night with just, like, a candle. And she's just staring at Joseph's body because she's, again, like, not sure, like, what the fuck do I need to do next? Mind you, there's noises and shit, like, all around the house at this yeah. point. You're hearing random screams, random muffled voices, noises, the dog barking. Yeah. You're in nightmare. In Silent Hill, like, you hear the sound and everything goes to shit. This is kind of what happened. Yeah. I thought it was such a nice touch of, like, when she left the mansion and, like, breaking the salt circles, almost like whatever entities were already in the house now have full access to it. And yeah. so when she's away for that little bit of time of just walking the road, they fuck everything up. You know, like you said, shit smears, bloody handprints, just markings all over the place. Like we had mentioned, the house is already really drafty and a little run down of just like with random rugs and stuff in it and like it was very dusty now the house is just straight up been fucked over yeah i just i like that touch where not only are these entities kind of unknowable but they also either are performing sick jokes or also just animalistic they don't understand our surroundings so they fuck everything up around them as well yeah while she's sitting on the staircase looking at joseph's body we see this spindly pair of arms kind of come into frame God, fucking creepy. and grab Joseph's arm and just slowly drag his body away. And then little by little, just more and more of these demons like start appearing throughout the house. And like always behind her or like right out, out of the light. Yeah. She goes upstairs and she sees slowly creeping like from the darkness at the end of the hallway, the old woman and her son. God, that was so creepy. You know, she turns around and sees like more and these are all like think the most motley set of hobos like beards disheveled hair some are missing limbs or like they've got weird bandages on but they've also got white paint kind of caked on in a very tribal looking kind of way like they're very like almost 
Pictish shaman kind of looking demons. They remind me of a lot of the imagery you see in that video game Hellblade, A Senua's Sacrifice. Like you were saying, very picked style, like dark shaman, basically. She is accosted by some of the demons and ends with her locking herself away in her bedroom uh, with just a candle and like locking the door with her chair. Like, And that's again when you hear her son's voice. Yeah. And the growling dog. Yeah. And the growling dog. And this time she's not really afraid. She's more just, I know it's not you. I like, I'm sorry anyway. I'm sorry. I still hear my son. Well, one more thing too. The entity that she's speaking to, interestingly, I had to like put on the subtitles to like hear it because it's a child's voice talking on the other other side of a door so it's kind of hard to pick up but it kind of alludes to the fact that she was supposed to pick her son up from school and she didn't and that's when the kid got abducted and he kind of alludes to like were you with that man so maybe she was off having an affair or something like that at the time that she was supposed to pick him up from school and that's the reason why he got abducted and it's an ambiguous line too totally because you could also read it as were you with that man as in Solomon I rewatched this scene actually two or three times once without subtitles and the other time with subtitles for the same reason just to hear exactly what he was saying I took it as you could take that line both ways you could take it as oh she was busy having a sexual encounter with a man or the demon was taunting her of like were you with Solomon you know the man who we now have who's dead basically and and yeah and that's kind of like the line that we were joking about in our intro it ends with the entity basically saying like she says I'm sorry I'm gonna get revenge on the person who killed you yeah and he said they didn't attack me I'm just some cunt who's using your child's voice to make you afraid yeah which is just like yeah this is a demon like that's something a demon would say in response yeah. when it realizes like it's not gonna trick you but like it's still gonna fuck with you yeah so the next morning she wakes up she walks out into the hallway and once again sees her son's toy on the floor and she's going to walk up to grab it and that's when again we see the spirits kind of surround her and as she's trying to get away she turns around quickly and one of the demons knocks her unconscious slams her on the head with a brick or something leading up to that that's when you see the old woman and her son who she first saw like kind of in that parking lot getting groceries then again in in that dream and now you actually see them like walking in the hallway towards her as she's going for the goblin toy um, which again the goblin toy has been missing for some chunk of the movie now yeah but we see them drag her down the stairs and into the basement and the basement's like a part of the house that we've not seen at all nobody has gone down into the basement for anything but they drag her down there and they've got her tied to a chair and she's just surrounded by all of these creepy people. I think you see a part of the dog at one point. Yeah, there's a moment where she looks over and just in the darkness with a weird kind of ethereal bluish green light and again, what looks like blood red dark rose petals falling from the ceiling. We see this giant black dog just sitting there but you only see the dog from like the neck down. You don't see the entirety of the dog but it's just standing there growling at her. Which is interesting because a big black dog is very much 
an entity in folklore specifically yeah. when it comes to demonic folklore so it's it's interesting that they went with that and like all these demons aren't just taunting her they're almost doing their own weird perverse ritual that you don't really understand what's happening yeah well they're torturing her as well i mean they've yeah they're torturing her they're torturing her in various ways yeah but like it's it's more i was expecting it to just be random torment but it's more of torment but they're also doing some weird perverse ritual themselves yeah. and at this point they just look like full-on silent hill monsters yeah, but eventually we see like one of the demons roll over dragging these giant bolt cutters and they put her finger in this bolt cutter and snap, cut the finger off. And the sound kind of cuts out at this moment and we see her like screaming, but she manages to wrestle free of the demons and get out of the chair at this point. And she's climbing the staircase as all these arms are trying to pull her down. And you can tell that if they wanted to keep her in place they probably could have but they're just fucking with her at this point or maybe that like they are bound to their own limitations in reality and they're trying to fight her get her back down sure, but yeah you could take it either way yeah but she's on the staircase trying to get out of the basement and the staircase is slowly filling with this bright blinding glowing light and she's pleading like i'm sorry i'm, I'm so sorry, sorry i'm yeah. sorry like you know she's pleading to the demons like i'm sorry and and as this light fills the hallway and the stairs to the basement, the demons kind of start to retreat little by little. And she slowly, like, walks up the stairs and she's fucked up. Her fingers cut off. She's covered in blood. She's been just beaten to shitting back for who knows how long now in this basement. But she enters the main room of the house again where this glowing, blinding white light is. And in the center of the main giant circle on the floor is a massive glowing armored archangel that's just crouched in the center of the room and it's like so fucking huge that it's literally like crouching down to like fit in the room underneath the ceiling so for a second right here if you've reached this far and you still haven't seen the movie i mean again what are you doing but if you're not gonna watch it go ahead then and watch like look up an image of this archangel because at first it looked a little weird to me like this is like so out of place in this movie but the more i look at it the more i dug the shit out of this thing's design and like yeah. the google image of it is really cool looking take a dark souls knight or dark souls like knighted creature but make it more like good i guess instead of like fucked up um and it kind of reminded me of that and the other thing i did like too is that all those golden flakes we saw yeah. earlier in the movie are now just showering around this angel for a movie reference this definitely reminds me a lot of some stuff that you would see in a tarsum sing movie the fall or the cell or something like that like it's very much like j-lo at the end of the cell where she's kind of in her full like ethereal mode it's a very interesting design for this giant huge angel that's Alice through the looking glass style like filling up this entire room and like having to crouch down to fit in it it kind of looks like one of those archaeological statues like come to life and like given color and everything yeah but yeah she is in complete awe of this giant angel and it speaks to her in a tone that's like so fucking low and bass heavy that it's just completely impossible to understand like and it's one of those that it just overloads your sound system it's just like that's all it is is just like this feeling that it's speaking to you she knows like what it's saying basically yeah now the scene kind of intercuts 
we are kind of parallel watching her carrying Joseph's body into the pond outside and in the front of this property and her in the room with the angel and she asks the angel you know for her one favor and that is she asks for the power to forgive and the angel just kind of smiles very slightly again we see her like pushing Joseph's body she like wrapped it up in some plastic wrap and we see her pushing his body off into this pond and we see the body like sink under the water it's a water burial yeah and then we see her definitively leaving the house driving away and as she's driving on the road she actually passes another car so like yeah. she's back so we know that like yeah she's back in the real world but she definitely has like this renewed sense of like peace and fulfillment and happiness and purpose and it's I think this is probably the first time in the entire fucking movie that you see her smile yeah so when she he says i wish for the power to forgive that's when i started bawling <laughs> and yeah like i'll get into why but yeah just what a way to end a movie like this oh yeah it goes full fucking bananas by yeah. the end we skipped over this at the very beginning of the movie before the movie even starts there's a quote that reads for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways which is psalm 91 at the time i was just like huh that's interesting like where's this movie going with that idea and by the end it makes so much damn sense And this movie is all about forgiveness, which is something I was not expecting for a majority of this movie. I did not see it going the way of like learning to forgive again, even to those who have wronged you in such an unforgivable way. It's not like a pro-religious movie or a pro-like statement movie. I just think it's a movie just exploring the idea of forgiveness and why the power to forgive is greater than any negative emotion you could possibly have. I don't know. What what, what did you take out of this? I mean, the movie is definitely about processing loss and dealing with grief and the extremes that people go to in those times where you're lost and you're alone. You know, one thing that this movie definitely does not at all bring up a reference is any kind of like father or husband in the situation. For all we know, Sophia was completely alone, single mother in this whole situation. So when she lost her son, like done, that was her world gone. The little bit that she had what she pushed away because like her sister and yeah. her sister's kids she straight up tells her sister to fuck off and I don't care about your kids the difference between you and me is your children are alive and healthy yeah. when like clearly at one point she was close with all of them because like her sister makes the comment of my children really miss you they really miss seeing you yeah yeah again I thought it was interesting like there's a lot of ideas also too around coping with the loss and learning to forgive and kind of also even dealing with the idea of God or just spirituality in general but it doesn't throw it in your face at all to me at least yeah so yeah if we're talking about like real life fears things like that i mean the the idea of loss especially loss of a child and especially loss of a child in such a fucked up dark kind of way you know a way that is purposeful in its intention it's not kid died in a car crash kid died in like an accident or kid died from an illness kid was murdered all of that and then her kind of process of dealing with that and going from I just want my son back to I want to punish those who did this to I just want to be able to forgive and move past and like continue with my life move on from this and be able to forgive 
forget about it and forgive the people who did this. That's so fucking powerful. And like you said, I don't think there's any kind of like religious undertones or connotations to that. It's a very human emotional transformation that she's going through over the course of the movie. While it's not pro-religious, it's not anti-religious either, which this is a weird thing for me. Like as someone who, who used to be Catholic, who moved away from Catholicism because I don't like a lot of the hypocrisy and or like darker human aspects of organized religion. I'm also one of those people that does still believe in its purpose in society. I'm not like one of those people who thinks like if we just get rid of religion, everything will be fixed. Like I do think religion has its purpose. It's just not personally for me, but like this movie doesn't really bother with any of that. It's not anti-religious and it's not pro-religious. It's not the focus. Yeah, at all. It's what I feel is true about spirituality. Like if, if there is something greater out there, this is the way I envision it. It's not like based off of what faith you're a part of. It's just something that all human beings can access, whether it's in this case, the power to forgive. It's not dictated by one dogma or another. Another thing too that's interesting about this ending is the water burial because the night that Solomon dies, like when she's in bed with him and he's kind of pouring his heart out to her about like missing his sister. He also talks about like how that's kind of ridiculous. He's going out in this way because he said like, I fought fucking demons. Like I've stared them in the face and laughed. Yeah. Am I a warrior? I, I was a warrior, right? And she's like comforting him saying like, yes, you are a warrior. And then at the end, she is giving him a warrior's burial basically like with this water yeah. burial um so i thought that was very interesting despite all his shitty attitude and him doing really shitty almost unforgivable things he's really more of just a warrior that has that has reached his end and like has been broken by the things he's seen and the things he's fought but he still fought till the very end basically anyway yeah and that she honored him in that regard which i thought was really cool nice touch yeah and two lots of movies lots of movies have done the whole like bring back the dead kid thing fucking pit cemetery obviously is kind of the main one <laughs> sometimes dead is better <laughs> <laughs> um, don't go down that road <laughs> there is another interesting indie movie called the other side of the door that i watched a few years ago that actually has good fucking title for a horror movie by the way yeah it has the actress from walking dead who played Lori. okay yeah and um it's about her and her husband they like go to india and they're living in india for his job I can't remember like exactly what happens, but basically she's doing the thing that they're doing in this movie where she is talking to her son on the other side of this door, but she knows she can never open the door. She can only talk to him through the door and that's it. Obviously, you know, by the end of the movie, the woman opens the door and, you know, horrors begin, which that's the other thing is most movies that do this whole like, let's bring the dead kid thing back. They usually get that out of the way pretty quickly so that they can spend the rest of the movie dealing with the consequences of, oh, well, you brought your kid back and now things aren't the same, you know, like Pet Cemetery. This movie kind of instead opts to, like, focus on the ritual itself and the toll that it takes on them specifically Sophia it respects the ritual but doesn't glorify it at the same time yeah. like it, again it doesn't make it metal as fuck even though there are elements yeah. of it that are metal as fuck black magic sucks it's not fun but I like too that this movie never brings the sun back you know we have a demon posing as her son talking to her to trick her but the sun never comes back which I took that demon was the same one that's the old woman and her son Could be, I took yeah. that old woman and her son is just one demon really fucking with her basically yeah, but yeah, I, I like that they don't go so far as introducing an element of, oh, here's your kid back again, because it keeps the focus on the two leads 
and kind of the weight of the ritual process and doesn't really take that inevitable turn into like basic slasher territory of well now we have to have the demonic kid who's back from the dead yeah. like slowly kill everybody which I was afraid for a second like when she finally reveals in the beginning to him that like it's about talking to her dead child I remember even texting you being like oh yeah let's summon an angel to talk to our dead child what could go wrong yeah I thought it was going that route for a bit thankfully it didn't yeah totally so yeah great time definitely like a grueling emotionally rough movie to kind of get through like you're as an audience member dealing with as much of the process and uncomfortableness as they are but super interesting movie yeah super interesting also generally creepy and terrifying yeah <laughs> not even when you see the demons like just stuff happening like screams on the other side of a wall the dog barking outside the bird flying in the window noises you can't explain seeing shadows moving like all of that is genuinely terrifying in this film but kind of as like one final tangent that I'm going to go off on to, like I said I was going to tell you like how this movie emotionally affected me and it, I don't know if it'll do the same for other people but bear with me because this is kind of a little bit of an explanation I was re-listening like I texted you and Lauren actually about this I was re-listening to this movie's episodes on both Batman Forever and Batman and Robin <laughs> yes yeah. I'm going okay. I'm going somewhere though, though, so bear with me excellent episodes not at all about this but I love it because Adam Risky is the guest on both those episodes and anytime Patrick and Adam are on an episode I'll listen to it yeah. even if it's a movie I've never even heard of I just like their banter at the beginning of each episode they talk about movies they've seen recently before they got into the movie Adam was talking about how he didn't like It Comes at Night he said that he didn't like it because they were talking about how it started in a dark place and only became darker and besides kind of making the point of certain things are in life are unavoidable and miserable and he was saying that we already have so many examples of this with the mist or the road or into yeah. the forest and with that point like with his point in that I was afraid that Dark Song was going to make a lot of the same decisions as that just super dark for the sake of being super exactly dark. starting in a really cruel place and only getting much worse and then ending abruptly with no resolution that's really just in a way that's like a very like fuck you to the audience yeah they were talking about how it comes at night was the director's response to mourning his father passing and like we can't take that away from the director like we're not going to knock him for that but at the same time to an audience there's no fulfillment in that it's just darkness on darkness and then it ends abruptly and yeah you can make the argument that it's like all about exploring humanity and how a tragedy is unavoidable at some point or another but again there's just already so many examples of that that we don't need that all the time yeah. and so with the dark song while this movie does exist in darkness and despair of like a situation where you're sequestered from everything and you're secluded and it stays that way for a lot of the movie and it only gets worse before it gets better and there's emotional darkness throughout the entire thing there is abuse between these two characters like yeah it's, it gets worse it's a yeah. rough grueling taxing movie to sit through from that emotional standpoint yeah but I'm glad they chose the way it ended and the way yeah. they did it because the situ shitty situation is still there the past still happened yeah. to her son but she still found a way to forgive again and probably now cope with it yeah it's a downer uh, movie that pays off with overwhelming amounts of hope which I think is beautiful and so kind of to tie it back to my own personal life is the reason why I bawled so hard when she says the power to forgive is and I'm gonna kind of get a little personal here uh, mind you so we've referenced it on this podcast I used to be a nurse a uh, full-time nurse I used to work in critical care I used to work with children in critical 
medical care. And there were times where just there was nothing you can do. People die, people get sick and they die, even children. And it fucking sucks. And the thing that I've been dealing with since then, since I left that job, and it's been over five years now, was that did I do something along the way to one of those kids that died, you know, just was sick and they couldn't recover and they died. Did I do something? Was something your fault? Was something my fault in that care? And that is something I have not been able to process and get over to the point where I've mentally convinced myself there was something I did. I am unforgivable. I can never forgive myself. And granted, I know in the movie, she's asking for the power to forgive possibly herself, but also those who took away her son. But I still took it as I wish I could ask that I want that power to forgive myself so I can finally cope with this and move on. And this movie gave me hope and like when I was not expecting it. And that scene just made me fucking ball my eyes out. I mean, I'm trying right now to hold back crying as well. And also too, the other point I want to make is I've struggled with belief in a higher power. I'm right now of the mindset of I've tried to label myself as completely religious or spiritual and I've had problems with that and I've tried to label myself as completely atheist and I can't accept that either and I have struggled with the idea of God I want to believe in God but I'm having so much trouble actually doing it because of rationality but also emotional reasons and this movie's idea of the powers of good even in just that five minute or whatever long scene at the end with the archangel this is what I want out of it if I could believe in something that's greater than myself in the universe this is the way I would would see it happening like the power is still with me as a human being but knowing that there's something out there even just watching my back is kind of beautiful to feel and so like yeah this movie really touched me in those two spots of like forgiveness and just trying to believe in a higher force of good that's out there yeah so yeah i don't know if that would have the same effect on everyone but i bawled my fucking eyes out when she made that wish that was one of the prettiest and most moving scenes i think i've ever seen in a movie in recent memory but with that so now to like kind of like unwind a little bit from the high emotions. Adam Risky brought up a great quote from Mr. Freeze and Batman and Robin <laughs> that kind of ties with that. And I forgot this quote existed, but he said his favorite Mr. Freeze quote was, your emotions make you weak. That's why this day is mine, <laughs> which is such a good villain quote. Uh, I love that fucking movie. Yes, right. It's so ridiculous. But yeah, so my emotions make me weak. That's why it's Mr. Freeze day. So... On that note, any last thoughts on uh, a dark song generally creepy touches on a lot of fears and disturbing imagery i mean even the stuff that isn't dealing with demons at all but the whole masturbation scene was really disturbing plays a lot of fears but also just a really moving touching movie at least to me it really affected me on an emotional level thumbs up generally scary uh the paranormal stuff was well done uh no complaints i don't know if i would view this movie any less if it didn't emotionally impact me maybe but i i just think this movie is beautiful yeah like i mentioned a second ago i've been very very fascinated with this movie since i first saw it i like movies that are kind of about process and watching things that are like so far outside of your realm of understanding seeing people like going through some kind of transformation or process is always interesting to me the scene with the figure in the chair is one of the creepiest things i've seen (laughs) in years oh yeah and this is the kind of occult stuff that taken seriously Seriously, I find to be very intriguing. I think for a first-time director, again, way to come out the door swinging. I'm very, very interested to see what he does next. There's definitely like that handful of newer directors where I will see anything that they put out.
out, period. Just because I've been so impressed with what they've done so far. And Liam Gavin is certainly in that same realm. So I'm very excited to see what he does later down the road. I want to see more stuff from Steve Orem and Catherine Walker because I was even just trying to look up interviews with them. And granted, I found an interview with Catherine Walker from, I guess, the Blu-ray of this movie. And then another that had both Orem and Gavin in it. I'm sure like I could find a lot of her stuff like if I looked for more of the European TV shows and dramas that she's in, specifically in Scotland, Ireland, and uh, the UK. But I would just love if she was more in the mainstream. Same with Steve Orem. Um, but yeah. like she really like, I mean, they both did a phenomenal job, don't get me wrong, but she yeah. really fucking like knocked out of the park for me in this movie. You should really check out Sightseers. Um, I've mentioned before on the show, but that movie Heather and I watched years ago and I was fucking cackling so hard at the ending of that movie. That's all I'll say. Like I I was fucking laughing my ass off so hard. That's definitely like a good one that features him pretty prominently. Yeah. But yeah, I would I would love to see Catherine Walker in, in some more uh, international or mainstream movies or I don't know. I just like I, I just enjoyed both of them. I thought they were great together and fuck I would watch another project with both of them as leads again because they seem to have great chemistry to eat with each other. Yeah. All right. Cool, cool. Well, that's another episode down. Thank y'all for joining us again this week. Uh, once again, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast with me, Monster Boy, and my cowardly cohort, Derek, um, as we watch a new horror movie every episode and discuss it in depth. So, And this year has been all about me getting scared and crying, so thanks. <laughs> So, yeah, check us out at our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter at Watch If You Dare and download future episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, CastBox, etc. Um, and, yeah, be sure to rate, review, subscribe. We would definitely appreciate it. Thanks for all the love that we have gotten on Twitter recently as well. And uh, once again, thanks to my younger brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for the bumps at the beginning and the ends of every episode. Check his stuff out at Bandcamp if you want to hear more. But yeah, that's going to be it for this week. I'm just the fucker masquerading as Sally to make you scared.